This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. Can we establish a global method for counting the carbon cost of buildings from cradle to grave? This is a set of global principles which can be applied anywhere in the world. It brings a set of principles of how to measure that carbon and you can take that globally and, and look at it look at it from a global perspective. Can we think differently about offshore assets and develop a way to build offshore wind at scale? But the, the additional challenge we identified was the, the fact that the technologies that were developed at the time were truly based on on oil and gas concepts so based on steel based on geometries that were used in in the oil and gas the the, the cost pressure in in renewables is much higher uh, compared to to oil and gas selling oil is not the same business as selling electrons so we realized that there was a need for for some kind of disruption and and there's where we enter the business with probably an out-of-the-box approach. Uh, We're not coming from from the oil and gas field, but from from the civil engineering field. Could a couple of quick conversations in a university lab help solve one of the biggest problems in construction? One of my helpers, a PhD um, assistant, uh, told me about his research. And, um, And I said, well, to be honest, I'm not that excited about concrete and I don't know why people would bother to research it until we work out how to make it zero carbon. Six months later he came along and said I think we've worked it out. 
I said, you must be joking. <laughs> Can a Formula One engineer win the race to replace fossil fuels? The fuel we make can go straight into the fuel tank of an existing vehicle, work with existing engines without any modifications and deliver the same performance, which, which is termed 100% uh, drop-in. So we make 100% drop-in fuels directly uh, out of our process. And that, that is very unique. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. This is one of 12 episodes originally aired between the 5th and 17th of February 2024. In this episode, we're looking at the shortlisted entries in the Net Zero Champion Award category. This category aims to celebrate the work of engineers and organisations as they develop new technologies to eliminate carbon emissions or to predict, measure and report emissions accurately. This is the final episode of three on the net zero category and the last in this mini-series on the shortlisted entries to the awards. The Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, RICS, has been shortlisted for the revision and extension of the whole life carbon assessment professional standard. Saytech Offshore Technologies has been shortlisted for the first floating wind turbine connected to the Spanish grid. Saratech has been shortlisted for its work on using captured carbon in concrete production. Zero Petroleum have been shortlisted for making synthetic fuel from water and the air itself. The RICS Whole Life Carbon Assessment Professional Statement was developed to allow surveyors to assess a building's carbon impact alongside its financial cost. The first revision to the standard was launched in 2023. We talked to the standard's lead author, Simon Sturgis, as the revision was in consultation in episode 203. This builds on the scope of the standard to include infrastructure assets as well as buildings, and it extends its target audience from the UK to the world. As Amit Patel, Head of Professional Practice and Construction at RICS explains, the new revision extends the standard's assessment right through the asset's life cycle. Forty percent of raw carbon emissions are emitted by a built environment, and then that encapsulates what we call the operating cost of running that building. So that's people going to work, operating a building, and also what we call the embedded carbon as well. So the embedded carbon is constructing that building to uh, to the buildability and then usability as well. So we've got embodied and operational carbon. Now those two are kind of put together now in the new format, but it takes a holistic view of kind of cradle to grave. So whereas before it was just kind of that bit part about embodied and operation we look at everything from right from the inception so all the pre-development work before any kind of spades in the ground so we're talking about client meetings brief setting the cost of architects the cost of putting surveyors together and the the element of what that carbon involves all the way to kind of demolishing a building and returning that that asset back to back to its grave so it, it kind of encompasses the whole realm of a building life cycle and the new revision can now be used for more asset types. Instead of we're looking at buildings, we're looking at assets as well. So we're looking at roads, we're looking at bridges, we're looking at stations, we're looking at tunnelling. So it involves infrastructure agreement as well. We can do an assessment on all types of assets now. Or you can apply, you can apply the, the methodology to those assets. 
As they developed the new revision, the RICS team consulted with potential users from around the world. Yeah, so this is a set of global principles which can be applied anywhere in the world. So we're looking at, uh, we've had calls from all around the world where, we've, where they've taken on board the existing uh, WLCA from the first edition. So we had people from New Jersey Port Authority all the way to the Singapore High Commission as well. So we had loads of aspects of where they adopted this. Now, what this does bring is it brings a set of principles of how to measure that carbon. And you can take that globally and, and look at it, look at it from a global perspective. The standard is ready for the world. And in the UK, it has received support from government. This kind of embeds into whole kind of the net zero carbon strategy for the UK. And obviously with with the sponsorship from the DTF, the Department for Transport, uh, we, we've seen take up from them. And obviously we'll, that will kind of bleed into different uh, authorities within within the, the, the government as well. So we are heavily kind of promoting this as a mechanism to measure carbon in a consistent, concise way where we've got clarity and transparency around the data. This will hopefully become a legal requirement and mandated from net zero carbon building standards. And the RICS, as the professional body for surveyors, is ideally placed to write and implement a standard like this. I think our profession is best placed to do this as, you know, as we're measuring um, bricks and mortar and calculating what the cost is, and then the cost versus carbon, or cost and carbon together. Therefore, you get an accurate reading of that, and especially from an embodied point, becomes the natural fit for the surveyor to carry this out. It's vital to build more offshore wind generation if the world is to meet its net zero goals. But the low-hanging fruit of wind farm locations has been plucked. There's barely a sandbank left near major population centres that doesn't have a wind turbine on it already. To build the thousands of wind turbines we need, we'll have to find a way to place them further offshore in water too deep for fixed bottoms. This was a spur for the development of a new type of base for floating offshore wind turbines. It's called SAF, an acronym for Swinging Around Twin Hull. David Carascosa, CEO of developer SATEC, explains. The reason why SATEC develops the, the SAF technology um, is based on, on, the, on the challenges uh, that in the early days we saw in the industry. We were not the first um, realizing the need for floating offshore wind technology. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a well-known well element, uh, well-known problem um, to be solved uh, for a while. We want to make offshore wind truly global. We need to go floating because we need to remove the limitation of that. The idea of floating offshore wind isn't new. What is new is a relatively cheap way to build these base structures. But the, the additional challenge we identified was the, the fact that the technologies that were developed at the time were truly based on, on oil and gas concepts. So based on steel, based on geometries that were used in, in the oil and gas, the, the, the cost pressure in, in renewables is much higher uh, compared to, to oil and gas. I mean, uh, selling Selling oil is not the same business as selling electrons. So we realized that there was a need for, for some kind of disruption. And, and there's where we 
enter the business with probably an out of the box approach. Uh, we, we're not coming from, from the oil and gas field, but from, from the civil engineering field. Uh, SciTech as a group is a, is a company that has uh, more than 35 years of experience in, in big civil engineering constructions and, and big civil engineering projects worldwide. Um, and therefore, we introduce concrete as a, as a base material for the technology we were developing. Uh, allowing for for a, a drop in the in the cost when when compared to to steel based solutions. The engineers have taken their idea for a base using twin concrete holes to see on a project called DemoSath. So it's the the acronym for swinging around twin hull, um, and that's related to to the shape of the of the um, the platform, which is pretty disruptive, right? Um, so basically, we we engineered um, a platform, a technology uh, that is actually um, supposed to, to, let's say, be used in, in big offshore wind farms. We start, start to, to, to develop a, a very ambitious uh, kind of uh, portfolio of, of projects where we, we started with demonstration, dem like small scale demonstration projects, up until the uh, full-scale demonstration project DemoSAF. The first base unit was constructed in Bilbao and has been towed to a test site two miles offshore. This demonstration version generates two megawatts of power, not a lot for a modern offshore wind turbine, but enough to show its viability. The project has won global support. What I want to uh, highlight, well, the the investment from, from RWE uh, being one of the biggest utilities in, in the offshore wind environment. Uh, it's the, the second company with, uh, uh, in, in terms of offshore wind assets. Um, and then uh, more, more most recently, uh, Kansai, Kansai Electric Power, which is the second utility in, in Japan, also investing in, in our projects. Um, both of them have focused their investment into the demonstration project in the DemoSAF. That support will enable the technology to be developed on a much larger scale. But we are not stopping there. We are looking now into developments at uh, greater scale with uh, Geroa or Medfloat, two projects in, in Spain in the range of 50 megawatt and, and obviously looking into commercial developments as, as well. So kind of uh, getting as quick as possible to the, the full industrialization and commercialization of floating offshore wind. This could be a real game changer for the offshore industry. Not only is SATEC demonstrating its unique concept, but it's developing a fabrication and delivery process that will reduce pressures on ports. Other floating systems can be the size of a football pitch. SAF has a much smaller footprint, and it's an idea that's coming to market just when it is needed. This market is, is gonna boom. We are seeing Quite a quite a few technologies uh, being being developed in in the industry, but but very few that have reached uh, this level of uh, maturity and demonstration. We will soon have a, a, not only a technology mature, but also the the capability to to manufacture a large large number of, of units, and that's something. Uh, being critical now to the industry as we see uh, a huge lack of, uh, of uh, space in ports. 
Michael Crook is a partner at Borough Happold Engineering and a visiting professor at Imperial College London. He's been working in engineering for almost three decades and has seen one problem as almost impossible to solve. We used to think that, well, concrete was a problem, steel was a problem, carbon emissions, but timber will come to our rescue. <laughs> uh, and uh, it slowly dawned on me a few years ago, and now it's become much more uh, prevalent that even timber doesn't come to our rescue because um, even in a managed forest where you replace chopped down wood, um, you're still taking away these important trees that are sequestering carbon now, which is when we need it. There are no building materials of note that really get us out of a carbon emission problem. They, concrete, steel and timber all have carbon emission issues. He's seen many attempts to take carbon out of concrete production, but none of them have really worked. And the problem with cement is that when you bake chalk at high temperatures, not only are you using fossil fuels and that's a problem, but you can try and avoid that and reduce the use of fossil fuels from CO2 emissions. There's a chemical reaction that's required that means that chalk has to throw off a load of CO2 as you turn it into cement. 8% of the world's emissions are due to cement making. Uh, and so it's a massive problem. Well, to reduce the carbon emissions allocated to some concrete, you have to try and use less cement, as I'm sure you know. Um, ways of using less cement, inventive ways are coming through, but the traditional one, and one that I used to use even in the 80s, was to put in either um, uh, pulverized fuel ash from power stations or um, blast furnace slag from, from fossil-fueled uh, blast furnaces making steel. Those resources in the world are declining rapidly because we're not using fossil fuels to make energy, so we don't get the fuel, pulverized fuel ash, and we're not we're doing a lot more recycling of steel, less and less making of raw steel in furnaces, so we're doing getting less slag. And this is a big problem now. It's not cutting carbon, he points out, to import furnace slag or fly ash from the countries that produce it. They could be using it locally rather than using diesel-powered ships to transport it. When we use imported fly ash, we're really just exporting our carbon emissions. The problem looked intractable until he talked to a young member of the team at Imperial. I uh, happen to be, I teach at Imperial College, although most of my time has been spent at Bureau Hapold designing buildings. Um, and one of my helpers, a PhD um, assistant, uh, told me about his research and um, and I said well to be honest I'm not that excited about concrete and I don't know why people would bother to research it until we work out how to make it zero carbon six months later he came along and said I think we've worked it out <laughs> I said you must be joking <laughs> anyway so when he sound that's Sam, Sam Draper uh, and his uh, friend um, Barney Shanks um, got together chatting about how do we you know create zero carbon they could see that combining sam's ideas that he was researching and barney's ideas that he was researching there was a kind of way that you could take what barney was producing and putting it in what sam was doing and you had a process which could at the end of it claim uh, a zero carbon cement at the heart of the process is a product called olivine it might not be familiar to everyone but it is one of the most readily available minerals on the planet Olivine is a, a handy name 
for um, magnesium silicate. And it, it can be found in many forms and actually it can have lots of different names. Um, so we don't want to get overhung up about olivine, but it's a convenient way of talking about, about magnesium silicate. And it's, it's I think, the, the most available uh, mineral in the world in, in sitting on in the Earth's crust. Once quarried and powdered, olivine has some amazing properties. In the nature of magnesium silicate is that apparently if you, if you grind it down to a powder and spread it on the ground, it has a natural affinity with CO2 um, and, you know, breaks down into magnesium carbonate, I guess, over a long period of time. So if you just quarried it, ground it and spread it over the surface of the earth, we'd start to combat some of the CO2 in the air, drag it in. But we haven't got time to do that and we need the land for growing food. So, um, so we can't do that. Ceratec take that natural process and speed it up. What Ceratec does is a kind of accelerated version of the natural weathering of this mineral. Um, it's, it's, it's not quite as simple as that sounds, but, um, but it's a basic, a basic rock that wants to <laughs> attract CO2. We've found a process where we can use it. We break down the rock and then with the, with the, break, the, the products of the breaking down of the rock, we can bubble CO2 or, or just in uh, industrial emissions with a decent chunk of CO2 within those emissions, bubble it through the slurry and um, it takes in the CO2 very rapidly. And this process lends itself to working alongside cement production. The most obvious site to use would be a, a, a cement making kiln. So the kiln is busy emitting CO2. Yeah. We just take those emissions out of the chimney, stuff them into our process. Our first job is break down the olivine, relatively easy, low temperature. The ground up olivine is then turned into a slurry. It separates out actually into a, a liquid and a, and a solid. The liquid that, that we've that's come off the olivine is where we bubble the CO2 through. That liquid then captures the CO2 um, and turns it into magnesium carbonate. And the slurry that came off the bottom, which solidifies and you dry, that's pure, a pure silica. Okay, so you end up with those two things. A pure silica comes out the bottom and a liquid that you bubble CO2 into um, becomes another solid. So you have a magnesium carbonate, which has got the CO2 in it, the carbonate, uh, and the, the other thing is the silica, which is, you know, you had magnesium silicate, you've now got silica. So we've mineralized the CO2, that's kind of captured it in a mineral form, and it is stable sitting there as silica and magnesium carbonate. So at least we've done some carbon capture, but we've spent quite a lot of money to do it. The process captures the CO2 from the kiln. But if this was just a method for carbon capture, it would be quite costly. Fortunately, there's a massive potential market for the products of this process. And it's one that is well aligned with cement production. But the really good news, and it helped that the research was being done at Imperial College Civil Engineering Department, was that there's an immediate high value use for both of those end products. So the thing that dropped out at the bottom, which is the silica, is, is almost identical to the pulverized fuel ash that 
I've been using to substitute for cement in concrete mixes. You can do exactly that. Um, up to 50% or so of the cement can be avoided um, and you just put the silica in. And we're actually finding in the last year or so that the um, performance of the concrete that uses 50% uh, silica from us um, is, is equal or better than the best performing cement uh, concretes uh, in terms of the setting time um, and in terms of potential strength. So it's not a poor man's concrete, it's, it's top notch. The thing that we've made the magnesium carbonate by bubbling through the carbon, that's where the CO2 went. That could have been an embarrassment because actually we produce twice as much of that as we do the silica. And we were thinking, oh God, what are we gonna do with it? Well, maybe we just backfill it into the quarries of olivine, but we don't have to, because it turns out, and you don't have to do very much with it, just, just dry it out, make it into blocks. And we've been playing around with, with you know, exact processes, but uh, it becomes as good as a brick. It's my simple way of putting it. Um, we're playing with durability to make it, making sure it's um, you know got everything you'd want of a building material. But effectively, it, it's performing better than we expected. Um, it has a natural uh, cementitiousness, its stickiness that, that sort of sets. Um, so those two products, you've kind of got one which can go into high-rise buildings and you know high-strength demand uh, concretes, and you've got the other which we can make into blocks. Um, uh, build build houses out of it, um, you know, uh, floor pad planks. Um, we're talking about replacing um, gypsum plasterboard, which is pretty high carbon problematic material. So th thank goodness, you know, there are lots of uses for that as well. Paddy Lowe has had a career many people would envy. From 1987, when he started working for Williams, he raced a pole position in the world of race car engineering. He has been at the top of the technical teams for McLaren and Mercedes before returning to Williams as CTO. But he never thought he was really working at all. Beginning my full on career, because it's didn't, we didn't really think it was a proper job back then. Um, we said one day we'll get a proper job, <laughs> so I think I finally have. So what is he doing now? Now he has his first proper job. As founder of Zero Petroleum, he's trying to revolutionise the world of liquid fuels, just as he did so many of the techniques and practices used in F1. The harms of hydrocarbons are well known now. We've been talking about them throughout this mini-series, and Paddy has been aware of them throughout his career. We've all grown up in a fossil fuel era, which is now uh, coming to an end. When I was a teenager, it was going to come, out, come to an end because we were going to run out of oil. Now, some um, more pressing issues have come, come up around global warming, um, etc. Uh, but one way or the other, it was always gonna, it's always got to come to an end because it's a finite resource and we can't keep developing human civilization without circularity. Circularity is vital, but so too are hydrocarbons. The electricity is great, but um, very, very difficult to store. Hydrogen is, has come through as an intermediate 
where you move to a molecule, but again, very, very difficult to transport and store. And in, in mobility, both of those are really out of the question for, for applications which require high endurance, high range, high payload. Um, it was fine for a road car, personal transport, where payload is not particularly um, high on the list of objectives. But as soon as you move to uh, anything commercial, on whatever form, whether it's a plane, a train, a ship, uh, a truck, then payload is what that vehicle is all about. If the energy is taking taking uh, the space of payload in terms of volume and weight, then you're going backwards commercially. And, and this is where liquid fuels really, really uh, become an essential solution. And the use of hydrocarbons and products derived from them go beyond just fuel. As Paddy points out, they are all around us. So it's, you know, very, very substantial part of modern life. Uh, and of course, modernity is constantly reinventing itself. So we, we're going to keep on advancing and not going backwards. And more and more of the populations around the world want to want to achieve that modernity as well. So we, we just we need all this material. Uh, energy and materials that come from hydrocarbons. And that's what we're all about at zero. For a hundred years, we've been able to produce hydrocarbons in the lab using the Fischer-Tropsch process. We've got very, very unique technology of our own that uh, we call direct FT, um, which is our ability to, to glue carbon and hydrogen together. Um, uh, and of course that process is not unique to us. It's been in existence for over a hundred years, actually. Fischer-Tropsch was developed in Germany in the 1920s. Um, and Fischer-Tropsch is essentially that, joining carbon and hydrogen together to make hydrocarbons. The problem with the Fischer-Tropsch process is that it outputs essentially crude oil. That then needs to be processed. Zero's approach is different. Uh, what's special about Direct FT is that um, it's very, very focused in terms of its um, yield, so what, what they call in chemical industry selectivity, so it's very selective to the target fuel. So if I want gasoline, uh, I make, uh, most of what I make will be gasoline, very, very vast majority of the molecules I make will be gasoline, whereas a normal Fisher chops will make a very wide range, almost like a crude, uh, crude oil uh, spectrum of hydrocarbons. And the second point is that the hydrocarbons we make are very high quality and tunable in that. So effectively, we can make a refinery grade fuel directly. That's the, the, the direct bit. The fuel we make can go straight into the fuel tank of an existing vehicle, uh, work with existing engines without any modifications and deliver the same performance, which, which is termed 100% uh, drop-in. So we make 100% drop-in fuels directly uh, out of our process and that that is very unique. It's a process that could deliver the hydrocarbons we need without waste and with circularity and Paddy thinks his team are on track to win the race to bring this synthetic fuel to market at a commercially viable price. That's why we're progressing uh, sprinting I'd say to build the first commercial plant um, to be operational um, in late 2025 early 2026 but also that we say within a decade from our own modelling and our own 
assumptions, which we think are reliable, that we can get production costs to be on a par with fossil fuel prices within 10 years. And that becomes a game changer in terms of the, the way the entire world works. But, and we truly move out of the fossil fuel era and into the synthetic fuel era. The entrants we've looked at today are all playing an important role in helping the world reach net zero. Their work will be celebrated at the Engineering Matters Award Ceremony in London at the end of March. This episode is the last in our mini-series about the Engineering Matters Award shortlist. We'll be back on Thursday with one of our regular episodes. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Kiri Nathan and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing by Will North, series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our own man who judges all we do is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media, and on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs>